May 2018 saw the 10th anniversary of the Oslo Freedom Forum. I had the privilege to be there, and this is the second of an eclectic series of episodes we recorded there. I'm joined by Mega Rajagopalan, one of the most distinguished journalists focusing on China, for a really broad-ranging discussion on surveillance, censorship, and the intersection of technology and authoritarianism in China, with some focus on the region of Xinjiang, where the government's actions keep reaching new heights of repression. We were looking for the parallels between China and other authoritarian states, and the ones we found are really interesting. But it's equally fascinating the ones we couldn't find, and the stark differences. How, because of its history, the position in its economic development curve, its scale, and its international position, in many ways, Chinese authoritarianism is unique. I love this episode. I hope you do too. Firstly, a couple of errata that Mega asked me to insert. She referred to the East Turkestan Islamic Front, but it's actually called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. And she referred to knife and bomb attacks in 2013. They were actually 2013 to 2014. A couple of minor notes, but accuracy is important with these things. So welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. I'm with Mega Rajagopalan, who is the China Bureau Chief for BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I've been following your work for quite a long time, and you've been writing some really interesting stuff about a couple of topics that I want to ask you about today. One of them is the repression being visited on the Uyghur Muslim population of the western province of China, Xinjiang. And another is the technology that China is using. What can you tell us about Xinjiang? You've been there before, right? Yeah, just to give some context, it's, it's this huge part of China. It's in the northwest, kind of right on the border of Central Asia near um, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Pakistan. It takes up uh, like a huge amount of space in northwest China. And it's basically the historical home of the Uyghur people. The Uyghur population there is about 11 million. There's lots of other ethnic minorities there, ethnic Kazakhs, ethnic Uzbeks, etc. And basically, this region has been in a state of like some state of turmoil for a really long time now. I first visited back in 2008. And I believe that year there were uh, a a series of riots that prompted this huge backlash from the government, like resulted in an internet shutdown that lasted for months. So that was sort of the first period of repression. But you know, when I traveled there in 2008, it was a really enjoyable trip. Like it's um, the natural beauty is really spectacular. Like it's a culture that is like very, very distinct from the rest of China. And like, I really enjoyed it. And then I visited again to write a story about mass surveillance last fall. And it felt totally different. The environment was different than anything else I had ever experienced. And it was just like shocking to me, the toll that it took on people. In what way did it change? Well, for instance, so Kashgar is the city in southern Xinjiang, and it sits on the ancient Silk Road. And you can think of it sort of as like the heart of Uyghur culture. It's much more ethnically Uyghur than the capital of the region, which is called Urumqi. And when I first visited in 2008, I remember like there, there was just like you could see Uyghur culture around you everywhere. Like there were, you know, little street side stands selling non bread, you know, there were little restaurants, shops, there were open markets, there was a night market where people would hang around all night and drink pomegranate juice. And there were lamb kebab vendors, like all these things. 
And it felt like a free and open kind of central Asian society. Obviously, there was quite a bit of repression going on, but you couldn't see it. Like, you couldn't feel it and sense it. And then when I went back last year, it was just... I mean, I've traveled in North Korea. I visited Myanmar before it opened up. I've never felt that way before. Like when you walk down the street, like you just feel this kind of presence of police and that people are watching you and that like cameras are watching you. It it was just a shock to me. I think one of the things that I really noticed was people on the street in the center of the city, they just don't talk. They sort of walk in silence. And the only like kind of ambient noise is police siren. The the stores don't even play music, which is very rare in China. Like in China, there's a lot of kind of like music around you all the time. And like uh, cash cards just really not like that. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty spooky. And you have checkpoints on the streets and stuff? Yeah. So basically, there, there's a guy named Chen Quanguo who is the party boss of Xinjiang. And in, in the Chinese system of government, the, the party boss is the top official. It's not the governor of the province. And he came from Tibet and he brought this kind of technique with him, which is called grid-style policing. And the idea is the city is divided up into these grids. And for each square of the grid, there should be a certain amount of police. So that's like officers plus little p- police like kiosks you could call them and uh, mobile police vans the the chinese uh, population aren't allowed to engage in politics they don't receive any kind of political education they're discouraged from being political so it's obviously a very good thing that some of the population are given like political education and they even run special camps for this political <laughs> education right yeah it's like summer camp no here's the thing like it, it's been erroneously reported that the government doesn't acknowledge the camps it's not really true the foreign ministry doesn't acknowledge them but if you look at like state media in xinjiang they're running these articles that's that quote random Uyghurs being like, I'm so grateful that I got a political education. <laughs> so they are like treating it like a summer camp. Yeah, it was like, I never knew that reading the Quran was actually an act of terrorism, <laughs> that I should have just burned it. Like it's a lot of stuff like that. So so what what's happening in these camps? How many people are in them? Just to preface this, um, these estimates are fundamentally fraught because they just involve a lot of extrapolation. But I think the most recent ex- estimates, which are backed up by this guy named Adrian Zenz, who's probably the foremost researcher on this, and he's in Berlin, is like hundreds of thousands, maybe just short of a million. Yeah. Hang on, did I hear that right? Just short of a million people in political re-education camps? That, that's the high estimate, yeah. And that's just in Xinjiang? That's just in Xinjiang. So there's lots of other kinds of extrajudicial prisons in China. There's black prisons, there's re-education through labor. Obviously, there's normal prisons that you could go to under the law. These political education camps are basically specifically for minorities. You can get sent to them for all kinds of reasons. Some people get documentation that I've seen. Others don't get anything. Like they just disappear in the middle of the night and their families don't know where they've gone. I interviewed a guy who lived in a this city called Arumchi, which is the biggest, I believe the biggest city in Xinjiang. It's the capital of the region. He just lived in an apartment complex. So basically every week for years and years and years, this kind of like neighborhood party official would stop by their apartment and just check in on a bunch of different stuff. Like would say, you know, is anybody visiting? Is anybody pregnant? Did anybody change their job? What what have you been eating? What have you been doing? Have you been praying? All this sort of stuff. You know, that's normal life for them, right? And then all of that information goes into, basically goes to the police department and they hang on to it in some fashion. So he was saying in the past like year or so, they started asking a lot more about religion. 
So they would say like, well, what are these books? So he had some religious texts hanging around. He had a prayer mat. They're, he's an intellectual. They're not like terribly religious. They're a little bit more secular, but he kept this stuff around because it's part of their culture, right? And, yeah. you know, they want to have it around. He just got a little bit nervous, right? So instead of saying, yeah, I follow Islam, but it's more secular, he's, he just said, I'm not religious at all, right? And that turned out to be the right thing to do. So then after a while in early 2017, Basically, people just started disappearing. So, like, his neighbors just disappeared in the middle of the night. It was the the summer, right? But um, he had this coat, and he just put it in front of the door, just so if somebody came for him, he would have the coat, because he expected to be held into the cold months. Wow. It was, like, really, really scary. And then back then, they didn't know where they where these people were going. Like, now it's, no, it's a known thing, right? But th- that was sort of the early months. You know, they don't, it's not like a real prison. So they don't even, they don't give you a, a arrest documents necessarily. They don't give you a sentence because you haven't committed a crime, right? You're just being sent for re-education because you've done something wrong, but you don't necessarily know what you've done wrong. And do you know what the conditions are like there? There's been some reports. AP just did a really good report talking to people who had escaped these prisons that ended up in Kazakhstan. What happens is... You go in, they give you Chinese language instruction, Chinese history instruction, obviously lots of communist party dogma. And there are like, you know, pretty bad conditions like food deprivation, like they're getting very, very little food. They might be subject to solitary confinement. There's no like labor that I know of. There's no systematic torture, although there's definitely abuses. And then I think people are generally being held between five to 15 months, I think. But, you know, it's early days yet. This is this phenomenon has only kind of exploded over the past year, even though these camps did exist before that. I mean, I should be clear, like, I mean, it's not justifiable in any sense, but I think it's helpful to understand the reasoning of the government. Right. So where they're coming from was basically there was this string of terrorist attacks in 2013 that they have blamed on Uyghur extremist groups. Actually, one group in particular called the East Turkestan Islamic Front, which is kind of like the, the evidence for the existence of this group is like very, very spotty. And most of the independent experts on Xinjiang don't really buy into it too much so they don't believe this group exists they don't believe it's a cohesive group that is organized outside of china and is planning terrorist attacks nonetheless there were terrorist attacks in 2013 it was basically a series of knife and bomb attacks and there was one like at a train station in yunnan which is this province in the south there were like a couple at markets in like just like vegetable markets and things like that. And all of them targeted ordinary people. It it wasn't, you know, Mm. government offices or anything like that. And as a result of that, there's there came this sort of wave of paranoia by the government. I think there's been kind of like an overreaction to that. And I think that's sort of the source of all of this. The picture you painted of Kashgar is really vivid to me as a Libyan, because Mm. I've been to Libya repeatedly before and after the revolution. During Gaddafi's time, I never spoke to someone who I didn't know, never spoke to someone on the street. Um, you'd just head where you were going, do your business and come back. Even within the, within the confines of our home, we would be very strongly discouraged from even saying something with a hint of politics. It was almost like there were people inside the house who were reporting. So that was a kind of atmosphere of pervasive fear. Yeah. And... In 2012, when I went back straight after the revolution, people were chatting to each other on the streets, like very openly making jokes, which I'd never seen before. When elections were held, people who lived near the polling booths were 
taking trays of sweets out of their home and distributing them to the the people who were lined up. Yeah. Um, and it's like the the nation found a kind of communal solidarity. And you sound like you're basically describing the opposite. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe that'll happen in the future. Yeah, it's it's strange because I think for Uyghurs, there is like a real sense of community among them. And you can see that in exile because they're like, they're very supportive of each other. They're very invested in preserving their culture. It's not really as much about the politics as it, as it is about just like keeping this culture alive. But then within Xinjiang, any kind of cultural artifacts are really dangerous, mm-hmm. right? And so we hear a lot of stories about government employees who happen to be Uyghur Muslims being very strongly discouraged, if not forbidden, from fasting during Ramadan, prayers being discouraged, children being prevented from going to mosques, you know, Quran study schools being closed down. And a lot of Muslims around the world think that this is basically a case of a government which hates the religion of Islam. Is that the sense that you get? Because I've also heard from other people that this is actually kind of, it's a separatism thing. And they're worried that the Uyghur people are separatists who don't want to be part of China and want to secede. And that just happens to overlap with a religion and a culture. And it's not actually about that. It's about their fears that there will be like an independence movement. I think it it can be both. Obviously, China, governed by the Communist Party, has been very suspicious of religious beliefs from its founding. And it's not just about Muslims. Like they have been cracking down on Catholic churches, for instance, in Zhejiang, where there's a lot of uh, Catholics, Tibetan Buddhists, right, are, are facing a lot of pressure. There are actually other Muslims in China beyond the Uyghurs. There's um, a group of Muslims called the Hui. And they're, they're Han, they're ethnically they're uh, ethnic Chinese. Han. Correct. And I think in the past, that's made a difference. They're more integrated. They look Chinese, as opposed to the Uyghurs who look a little bit more Central Asian. There's no Hui separatist movement. And there are separatists, like in Xinjiang, there's no polling, but it's, I wouldn't say it's like a, a huge part of the population. And to be honest, like they don't really have a hope of getting their own country. So I think people who are practical don't share that viewpoint anyway. But basically, there are people who consider that Xinjiang is, uh, should be called East Turkestan, yeah. and it's a Central Asian nation, which should be separate from China. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. I don't know if you caught this, but one of the, probably the most shocking, the single most shocking news item I saw in 2017 was an article in AP or AFP which revealed that there is a Uyghur battalion fighting on the ground in Syria affiliated to one of the most extreme militias in Syria and when the reporter spoke to them it it was so surprising on so many levels one of the things was that when the reporter spoke to them they found that these people were actually not interested in the ideology that these guys were fighting for at all. They were affiliated to one of the most extreme groups and they showed extreme distaste to their ideology at the same time. And they tried to figure out why are these guys here? What's what's their horse in this fight? The fighters basically said, we're here to find out how to conduct a liberation struggle against a government. So they were fighting by day and getting weapons training and stuff. And by night, Another mind-boggling thing is that they were studying the state of Israel and its founding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the Israel thing is like really interesting to me. I was, yeah, I, I have, I've read that report and like I, I sort of felt the same way. I think for Uyghurs, it's like they're just like such a small group of people that they want to like learn from other people's struggles. And, you know, I, I guess this is, this is my fault. I shouldn't like stereotype, but I was interviewing somebody who's a Uyghur intellectual and he's in exile in Turkey 
and he, but he's, he doesn't have a passport because the Chinese government has canceled his passport. So he's trying to figure out where he can get asylum and he really wants to go to Israel. And I was like, well, why, why would you want to go to Israel? And he was like, oh, I love the Israelis. Like, because like his thinking was like, these people really, you know, they came out of the Holocaust and they got their homeland and I want my homeland. And I was like, well, I, I would have thought that you might identify with the Palestinians, you know, because they're under occupation, right? And he was like, why would we identify with failure? I want to identify with success. Wow. <laughs> I was like, that's harsh. I didn't know this until recently, but apparently there are some popular books in the Uyghur language about how do we emulate the Israelis. Like, it's, it's like kind of a cult thing for them. I didn't realize this. I thought this was just like a one-off thing. No, it's a thing. And it's interesting that Israel is another country which is pioneering a lot of surveillance technology alongside right. China. Yeah. Well, they have their own sort of version of Silicon Valley. Right. And they have this revolving door between the military and technology companies, and they share so much expertise. And it's why you get a lot of tech startups coming out of Israel, which end up being purchased by people like Facebook and Google, right. which do stuff like satellite tracking and photography. They do stuff like uh, voice recognition, facial recognition, all of these technologies which are so conducive to surveillance. Wow. And a lot of them are tested out on the Palestinian people first. Right. I guess like with with China, to me, the central issue is privacy rights. So, I mean, I'd be curious, like, to what extent Palestinians have any privacy rights, like how that relates to Israeli citizens and things like that. Well, Palestinian Internet is very heavily surveilled and there are kind of algorithms which have been created to basically attempt to. It's this predictive policing thing and trying to detect where there's going to be unrest and how how it can be stopped before it happens. The checkpoints thing that you mentioned in Kashgar, that's very similar. Palestinians have to pass through checkpoints all the time in order to get places, especially in the occupied West Bank. I'm not too up to date on like the specifics of the technologies that are used. Some of my friends who are foreign reporters in China that have also worked in Israel have made that same kind of point that, you know, it really sort of feels like Palestine. Just been to Israel as a tourist. Yeah, I think the checkpoints are like very, very similar. I'm not sure if you use this phrase or other people who have covered Xinjiang have used this phrase, but it's been called a laboratory for surveillance technologies. Yeah, you know, there's some... There's some disagreement about that, I think, by scholars. I think using the phrase laboratory, it sort of suggests that this technology is being tried in Xinjiang and then it's going to be used in the rest of China, like after that. I don't necessarily think that's a foregone conclusion. So like, I mean, back to the kind of 2008, 2009 period, you know, they shut down the internet for months. And I remember at the time people were thinking, oh my God, this is the future. And fast forward 10 years and internet shutdowns are pretty normalized in many parts of Asia. But in China, they have very heavy censorship, but internet shutdowns are not like a normal thing in China, right? In the rest of China. So there is kind of precedent for things in Xinjiang being very extreme forms of repression, but that don't really spread to the rest of the population. And that sort of makes sense because I think the CCP leadership is invested in keeping people happy to some extent. And the CCP is the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. But basically, the, the surveillance state in Xinjiang is being built by mostly small and medium companies. And this it's like companies from all over China, they're working on government contracts, um, they're being enabled by government policy and like, you know, a need for this. And they see the whole region is this very, very lucrative market 
and it's really exciting for them. So I, I think in that sense, they do R&D there. They do like test their products there, but those products might end up being used maybe elsewhere in China. Maybe they'll export them. I don't necessarily know if they see it as a laboratory, but I mean, certainly there's more demand for them to sell their products in that region versus elsewhere in the country. So it's, it is kind of a driver of R&D. I think so. Yeah, I think so. So from what I've read, it tends to be large scale surveillance in terms of kind of dragnets, which are aimed at capturing data from the entire population without discriminating, which uh, happens sometimes in the Arab world. But there are also some examples of highly focused surveillance. Yesterday, I heard that Ahmed Mansour, who is probably the last, he was the last voice for human rights in the UAE, mm-hmm. was sentenced to 10 years in prison under the charge of communicating with human rights organizations. Oh, yeah. But... Part of the story was that the UAE basically paid a company several million dollars to develop some surveillance software specifically for his phone. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and uh, they paid like a lot of European companies for surveillance technology in the past. There was this big tech scandal with uh, an Italian company called Hacking Team. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I... I don't know that much about this, but I've read just as a newsreader, I've picked up that, you know, there's lots of... Western companies, like including like BAE, uh, the British weapons manufacturer, that, that are selling like uh, really intense surveillance tech, you know, all over the Gulf. Even countries which you normally wouldn't associate with it, like Denmark has right. uh, has contracts to supply Gulf countries with surveillance software. Yeah. Um, you normally associate the, the Nordic countries with, you know, a high level of support for human rights. Right. What's your experience been with internet surveillance in China? I know you shared this anecdote in your Oslo Freedom Forum talk of sharing memes of Winnie the Pooh in a WeChat group and then realizing that they weren't getting through. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like, I think there's this interplay between censorship and surveillance going on right now that we don't always think about those two things. But I mean, I think sometimes they work together and sometimes they actually work against each other. So I heard this anecdote recently from a Tibetan activist who's living in exile. And he was talking about surveillance in the exiled Tibetan community. And basically, this guy is really good at digital security. You know, he trains other activists in that area. And he's really conscious of how people approach those problems, uh, particularly those with without a lot of background knowledge. And he was telling me that if we talk like, you know, like four years ago or something, like their big problem would be phishing attacks. So that like these Tibetan activists, they would go to conferences or something, and there would be like a fake email from some other person at the conference, but it was actually like somebody trying to, you know, put malware on their computer, right? Mm-hmm. And he said recently, like in the past year or so, those phishing attacks have completely stopped. Well, I said, why? And he was like, well, I don't think it's the lack of interest in the Tibetan issue. And his theory is that everybody uses WeChat, so they don't need to do it anymore. So then that makes you think... You know, if, if if they censor WeChat, right, they do to some extent. But at the end of the day, if they censor everything, they can't figure out what people are saying. So mm-hmm. I think like when it's not censored, it's almost more insidious. So that answer you just gave, I have like five questions to come yeah. off of immediately. It's interesting that people, you know, people instinctively imagine that censorship and surveillance go together. Um, that's not my experience in much of the Arab world. You often have surveillance of certain people who are considered a threat. Mm and sen- censorship of certain things. For example, you, you assume that all criticism is forbidden. In several Arab countries, you find that actually there's a very high level of tolerance for criticism and even satire, mm. as long as it doesn't become targeted at a certain point. So in some countries, as long as you don't specifically mention the king, 
Like, you can say whatever you want about the prime minister. Right. Um, just don't mention the king. Yeah, Thailand is like that too. Mm. You, you mentioned WeChat, and I, I know there's quite a deep story there. Tell me more about WeChat. So WeChat, I guess, like, you can think of the Chinese internet, right, as a separate ecosystem. So it's, I guess, a lot of people would call it an intranet, not really the internet, because it is kind of siloed off from the rest of the world unless you're using a VPN, right? So every kind of big tech thing that we use, like all forms of social media, there's sort of a Chinese corollary to that. And I think the trend we've seen broadly in social media is this kind of like consolidation in a lot of places. You go to a lot of countries where all they use is Facebook, right? Facebook just happens to be super popular there. So in China, that's basically, it's become WeChat. I mean, some people use Weibo, which is sort of the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, but by and large, all the discourse has moved to this WeChat messaging app. So WeChat started off as something kind of like WhatsApp, a yeah. messaging app, and then it became a lot more. Yeah. So it's made by this company called Tencent, which is uh, one of the biggest tech firms in the world. It did start out as a message- messaging app and everyone loved it. So it started out that way. And then now it's moved into e-payment and all kinds of services that are sort of embedded into the app. So within the app, you can do pretty much anything you need, like all day long. Like you can order breakfast, get your laundry sent out, order a cab, anything you can think of. Like, you know, you can get discounts on um, on your groceries. You can book a hair appointment. Basically, just like anything you want to do, you can do in this app. So all of these things which you'd imagine to be different apps, they've all been kind of sucked into and consolidated into this one app called WeChat. Yeah. The reason that that matters is that, you know, obviously it means then that company has all of this data and they can put it all together if they want, right? And they are putting it all together, aren't they? I'm sure they are. I mean, they they claim to have, um, you know, good data privacy standards, but... I mean, definitely. Yeah. And the the other thing with that is that, you know, there's a reason that Google doesn't operate in China anymore. And that reason is that they didn't want to comply with government requests for data. Tencent, being a Chinese company, is definitely complying with those requests. And there's no kind of like legal process there. It's not you have to get a subpoena to get my geolocation data from Tencent. So there's something I want to go back to, which is um, surveillance in Xinjiang. Mm. I've heard that people are being forced to install an app on their phone. You've written about that, right? Yeah. There's actually a couple of apps like this. It's not that 100% of the people in the region have been forced to install it. And also, like, I mean, perhaps there's a difference between coercion and being forced. But there are definitely, like, reports of people that have been asked to download this app. They're not really in a position to say no if, like, a police officer asks you to do it. The app basically combs your phone for information about images and videos, basically looking for extremist material. Although extremist material in the eyes of the the Communist Party, that could just be like, I don't know, an Arab soap opera or something like that. And it sends it back to a central server. Mm, Wow. Is there anything like that in in Libya? No, there isn't. And until now, they've been, well, there isn't really a central authority in Libya. It's basically right. anarchy, so they're not very sophisticated. When the Arab Spring broke out in 2011, governments across the region had a very poor understanding of social media. And what they'd basically do was arrest activists and beat them until they unlocked their phones and just go in and look for pictures of oh. protests. Yeah. So um, they didn't even understand that what you want to be doing is looking for a Twitter account and, and checking who they're in touch with. They didn't even do that. Right. Now it's a lot more sophisticated because what they're doing is um, propaganda 2.0, right. which is not to tell you 
outright blatant falsehoods in the hope that you'll believe them, yeah. but to flood you with so much misinformation, like we hear that Putin is doing with uh, Western public spheres, to flood so many, so many different kinds of disinformation right. that you don't know what to believe anymore and you just give up and shut down. Oh, that's um, so interesting. So Arab Twitter for the last couple of years, and we've been speaking to the team at Twitter about this here yeah. at the Oslo Freedom Forum, Arab Twitter for long periods became almost unusable because you couldn't tweet without being flooded by armies of trolls and and bot accounts um, with abuse, with foul language, with uh, repeated phrases. Like there are phrases you can search and it's particularly bad in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. You can search phrases like popular hashtags and you can't even see people tweeting on them because you just get the same like propagandistic statements repeated hundreds and thousands of times. So they're, they're basically making it so that these places are unusable. Right. You can't exchange ideas on them anymore. And a lot of people have gone offline because they ju- they've just given up. They're exhausted by the, the levels of abuse that they face. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's a very different technique to just surveilling everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because there are a couple of isolated issues where I've seen that phenomenon um, with, like, Chinese-related subjects. But, like, by and large, Chinese people are, like, who live in China, they're not using Facebook and Twitter. So these kinds of, like, mass disinformation campaigns, I don't think the government really even feels the need to do that. I see a lot of stuff about how certain phrases and hashtags are censored on Weibo, Chinese Twitter, because, you know, they have a political context, like the hashtag June 4th, I think, which yeah. is the Tiananmen Square anniversary. You're not, you're not allowed to say that. And if you type right. it, it gets censored. Yeah. And I see a lot of stuff about how creative people are in, in circumventing that by coming up with euphemisms. And it's it's like the Winnie the Pooh for Chinese President Xi Jinping. Right. Yeah. You know, as long as I've been in China, like mentions of June 4th are censored. June 4th is probably the most sensitive thing in China, the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And the thing that's crazy is that there's lots and lots of countries where the most sensitive thing in their history is censored, right? But the thing that's different now is that stuff that doesn't even matter that much is also getting censored. Things get censored just because they're popular. Okay, for instance, there was this, there's this cartoon pig named Peppa Pig. Yes, I heard about this. Did did you write an article about this as well? I didn't write about it. I really regret not writing about it (laughs) because... It's, it's so funny. Yeah. But, okay, the Winnie the Pooh thing. Take Winnie the Pooh. Okay, Winnie the Pooh has become the stand-in for Xi Jinping. It's part of this meme. Winnie the Pooh is she and Obama is Tigger because Xi Jinping is, you know, he's a little bit cute and chubby and <laughs> Obama is kind of tall and lean like Tigger, right? So so that's the joke. But you can sort of, I, I think anybody who's been to an authoritarian country can understand why that would be censored because it's about the leader of the country, right? Of course, it's going to be censored. Peppa Pig, on the other hand, it's not that Peppa Pig was censored like everywhere, but mentions of Peppa Pig were taken down on some social media platforms. And there's no explanation for this. It's not a stand-in for anything. It's just like this meme that people are crazy about right now. So people just like Peppa Pig and, and someone feels threatened by this. Yeah, it's like there are a lot of like dimensions to this that I don't understand. It like goes like very deep within like Chinese pop culture. Like some people like it ironically. Some people like it because it's cute. Some people like it because it's like, I don't know, it's like a symbol of like youthful malaise. And like, I'm still trying to get my head around the many like dimensions of Peppa Pig in society. But like, I am i don't know if the censors understand it, but I'm sure they think it's a threat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read this thing about like youth street subcultures adopting it ironically, like yeah. we, we, alongside shaved heads and tattoos and stuff. And, and yeah. so, some 
official was quoted as saying, you know, it's a symbol of thuggishness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a bad translation, but like, yeah, I mean, basically. It's just like there's this culture in China called Sang, which is basically this culture of young people who just feel really like helpless they don't really want to participate in the economy and they've been getting bashed in state media because it's like you're lazy and you're not productive but this is like a kind of subculture and i think peppa pig has become sort of part of that (laughs) so we spoke a lot about xinjiang and we haven't really mentioned well we have mentioned a bit the fact that they're just getting the sharp end of the stick the stick is actually being used against everyone right what else is happening like across china in terms of surveillance Yeah, so the thing about surveillance in China, I think in the West, there's a lot of very kind of sensational reporting about it. And, you know, there's I've seen so many stories that are like, oh, you know, this is going to be a panopticon. This is Orwellian. It's an all-seeing surveillance state. And I think the reason that that's problematic is that it misses the point that First of all, there's two different standards. Like one is for dissidents, ethnic minorities, and, you know, troublemakers. And there's a, there's another standard for everybody else, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is we're talking about a lot of different data gathering programs and, it's really unclear right now and really jumbled and messy um, and hard to figure out how all of these programs sort of fit together. And I think that matters because they're all under different government bodies. And the way they fit together is going to be able to tell us like how much any one body is going to know about individuals and, and be able to put together. I think the third thing these stories miss is they're really good at gathering the data. But the question is, how good are they at analyzing it? Especially things like audio and video like how good are they at like synthesizing that and putting it together with other pieces of information i've seen that they're very good at certain aspects like facial recognition they seem to be leading the world in i saw something about them rolling out glasses like google glass to police officers who are basically able to spot the faces of uh, suspects in real time with facial recognition in train stations yeah 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 there's lots of that in train stations now the bbc had like a little piece about basically this bbc reporter john sudworth he went to a police station and like he asked them to um to find him in a crowd using facial recognition and it took like some absurdly short amount of time like a few minutes or something like that And tell us about social credit. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of misinformation out there about social credit. Social credit system, it's basically, it's not one system. It's not centralized. It's a network of government and some corporate programs. You could understand it that way. They're at all levels of government, central, provincial, local. They sort of, they work together to pull different kinds of information from people's lives. I think... The kind of more scary version of this is this thing called Sesame Credit, which is under this company called Alibaba, which is a Chinese tech giant. That program, it's basically a, it's sort of like a rewards program. So it's opt in. You're not obligated to do anything and they don't really tell you what goes into that algorithm, but it's clear that like things like online purchasing patterns, um, you know, are a big part of it. That kind of raises a lot of questions around data security, right? Like, I mean, how much of that are they going to end up sharing with the government? Is that program going to eventually be folded into the national social credit system that um, is going to roll out in 2020? I didn't actually hear about a national system being rolled out in 2020. Basically, they say that they're going to implement the social credit system in 2020. It's sort of unclear what that looks like because this whole thing is evolving. They now have pilot programs in a number of cities. Each city kind of looks a little bit different. There's a really great piece in Foreign Policy where the reporter visited this city called Rongcheng. 
basically they have these billboards like in the city where it shows, you know, who's doing kind of doing the best by the social credit system. So who's the model citizen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Model citizens. I think a key function of them right now is blacklists. So I think there's been a lot of talk about scores. It's not really about scores. It's right now it's more about like blacklists. So for instance, like if you have like a court judgment against you, you can be blacklisted from doing something, right? If you have behaved badly <laughs> as a plane traveler, you can be banned from flying. You can be banned from the first class seats in high speed rail, right? China is a massive country, which uh, there's this dynamic of regional versus central. Right. We mentioned the fact that in a lot of countries you can you actually have a surprising degree of leeway for criticism so long as you don't criticize the top leadership. I've heard, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, that at the grassroots level, in terms of local party officials, there's actually a lot more leeway to criticize than people think. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. It depends who you are and it depends who the person that you're criticizing is. Because I think like what people underestimate in China is that like all these kind of dynamics that are present everywhere in the developing world, like just like impunity and corruption, that's still there in most parts of China. Yeah, they have a really functional system in a lot of ways, but they're really still struggling with corruption, right? So like you have this phenomenon of uh, petitioners. So petitioners are basically not, they're not political dissidents. They're kind of just ordinary people who something bad has happened to them, right? There's some kind of medical malpractice issue, or they've had their land stolen, or they're in some kind of property dispute, or like, it's something like that. And what they want to do is take their concern to the government, right? So like, if you were in the US or something, you would sue. But in China, that's probably not the most effective technique. So you might want to go to Beijing and, you know, visit the central petitioner's Bureau, I think it's called. And what happens a lot is that these petitioners end up getting jailed or like beat up by either thugs or like, yeah, like people working for the local government. And that sort of stuff is not supposed to happen. The central government doesn't want that to happen. You know, they, they want to solve these problems for people in some sense. And they want to push back against the kind of vested interests at the local level. One of the things that Xi Jinping has promised to do is reform the petition system. The problem with that is like they're I mean, they're not doing a terribly good job with it because, um, you know, petitioners are still getting, you know, a lot of abuse. But I think that tension between national and local is there with that. I'd be interested to know if this is the same dynamic in the Arab world. But, um, you know, I have heard these stories like in China, there's always this question about how effective is human rights diplomacy, especially, you know, from the EU and the US. Because, you know, when you're shaming the government, is it really going to get them to change their behavior? And I've heard from like, human rights groups and diplomats that like the one thing that really does work is when they raise cases of these individuals who are they're not high profile dissidents, they're not famous, um, but they're just like some random person who like lost their land is now like doesn't have access to a lawyer and is like rotting in some detention facility in somewhere in rural China. And if they raise that with the central government, that locality is going to have to take care of it because it's like you embarrass your country like on an international stage. I think there's there's an element of certain things becoming headaches for the government when they don't need to be headaches. Um, so, like, pe- people in the West underestimate a lot of the time how much leverage they have because when your country is doing some kind of financial deal with the government mm-hmm. and they say, hang on, we can't do this because X is in prison and it's kind of sensitive back home that you're keeping X in prison, to the government is just like, well, are we really that invested in keeping X in prison? No, get rid of the headache. Right. I think in other cases... 
it's been the opposite. And one of the one of the high profile names is Raif Badawi, mm. who is the Saudi liberal blogger who um, was accused of atheism and apostasy and uh, sentenced to death, commuted to an inordinate number of years of prison plus a thousand lashes in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And the more his name became a high profile issue in the West, the more people dug their heels in in Saudi Arabia and it became like an issue of saving face because if we if we give up and 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 let him off we've given in and and, and been humiliated by the west into into like a, a step backwards so we can't and it's become like a, a battle line yeah you know that's so interesting to me because i think like when people you know analyze the way the chinese state acts in terms of foreign policy there there's this kind of lazy tendency to shift back into this argument of like oh the chinese care about face everything is about face to them it's like well yeah cuz western cultures don't care about shame like we love to be ashamed like it doesn't make sense so I, it's very interesting to me that those same dynamics are present elsewhere too my favorite one of these is um in uh, after the us invasion of iraq I can't remember which year it was exactly, but uh, President Bush was giving a press conference alongside uh, the Iraqi prime minister and a journalist in the back stood up, shouted something, took off his shoes and, and threw them one after the other at George Bush. And, and, he, <laughs> and he ducked and they narrowly missed his head and he made a joke about it and it was kind of like the hot thing of the day. Right. I loved how all of the Western news outlets were adding little clarifications like throwing a shoe is considered to be highly disrespectful in Arab culture. <laughs> What, what, what? How is it considered in Western culture? Right. <laughs> That's so funny. It's this kind of tendency to um, exoticize yes. um, people in other parts of the world and act like, you know, they do these really bizarre things that we need to clarify for you. <laughs> Another big China qu- cliche is that people who want to act like they know a lot about China, they'll use this Chinese word called guanxi, which is, it basically means relationships. Oh, guanxi is very important in Chinese culture. It's like, yeah, because we don't care about relationships. Everything is by the books. <laughs> Networking is not necessary, right? Yeah, there's there's a few um, journalists in in uh, big Western papers who I could name. Actually, I'm gonna have to name them. Thomas Friedman. We've done an episode about you before. We don't like your work, but he he sometimes does this where he slips in an Arab Arabic word yeah. just to show, like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Oh my god, so many people do that about China. It's like the best way to know about any of these countries if you're reading somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about is if they randomly slip a foreign word into the art the column. It's usually a column, and I think. That's one of the marks of a good journalist. You can tell someone is a good journalist when they make an issue easy to understand as opposed to making it seem like it's incredibly intricate and complex and you can only ever understand it through them as an intermediary. Right, exactly. So I'm going to ask you a very different question that a few people in the West might be wondering. Um, Do Chinese people care about human rights? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, do people know what human rights are? Like your average person on the street in any country, did they, could they define what human rights are? If you sort of define that more specifically, like do Chinese people care about being able to say what they want online? Yeah, they probably care, but they don't, they don't care about that more than other things that they might value, right? Like things like having a functional government. I think yeah. probably... This is a generalization. It's a country of 1.4 billion people as a caveat. But I would say based on my time there, I think people care a lot more about anti-corruption than they do about freedom of speech. And that's understandable, I think. 
there's been a few interesting conversations going on on like the the sidelines of the Oslo Freedom Forum between a few activists. I was listening to a few Arab activists yesterday from different countries speaking about how activists can kind of fall into traps of assuming people are, you know, thinking about these almost specialized topics or Sometimes as an activist, you assume that everyone is a constitutional nerd like you right. and everyone wants to be like, everyone is very passionate about the constitution being very functional. Oh my gosh. When a lot of people are most concerned about, you know, how bread is going to be put on the table for your family tomorrow. Yeah. But you can make people care about the exact same issues just by phrasing it in a way that relates it to their daily situation. So you could say, instead of being all constitutional about it, you could say that, do you care that when an injustice occurs to you at the hands of local government, there's someone independent who you can report that to without exactly. the fear of retaliation? Yeah. You know, that That's human rights, but that's phrased in a very accessible way to ordinary people. I, yeah, I, I definitely think the language of uh, around human rights in China like has that problem for sure, especially in the West, I think. There's this idea that people naturally, because they want those things, they'll, they're going to realize that their government doesn't care about that, and then they're going to end up overthrowing their government. It doesn't really work like that, I think. And I, I do think in China, people don't necessarily see human rights and democracy as going together. Why is that? I don't want to say that this is a narrative that's been forced on people by state media, because, you know, I think people are smart and they can come to their own conclusions. But it is true that state media does push this narrative that democracies are unstable. Mm. And you can see this in this show called Xinwen Lianbo. Xinwen Lianbo is basically a 30-minute news program. It comes on every evening. It's like the evening news. And it's on CCTV, which is the Chinese state broadcaster. And there is a joke about this program that people like to tell. And it's that the first 10 minutes is that the leaders of the Communist Party are very, very busy. The second 10 minutes is that the people of China are really happy and joyful. And the last 10 minutes is that other countries are really messed up. They love to show like the, like anything that's going on in the Middle East. Like they'll show that all the Arab Spring stuff, like they loved that. Protests gone wrong and like this is what will happen, you know, if you protest in an authoritarian state. And they show the U.S. all the time, like Black Lives Matter protests always make it onto the evening news. So this seems to be so common. Iranian activists have told me that the Iranian regime loves nothing more than to broadcast graphic footage of Syria and say, this is what happens when you go against your government. Mm -hmm. A couple of days ago, I heard that authorities in Cuba, in their two, I think, state-owned newspapers, which are the only newspapers allowed to exist, love to print the news of what's going on elsewhere in the world. And again, it's basically like black man shot in America for being black, protests gone wrong, extreme violence in this country, right. abuses in this country, and... Aren't we so lucky that we don't have any of this? Exactly. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Russia Today does the same kind of stuff. A lot of people believe that one of the reasons Iran intervened so deeply in the Syrian revolution and made it end up the way it is, is to basically make it into a cautionary tale deliberately so that they would have one right next door, which they could point to so easily and which would make their point. Yeah, exactly. So I think, like, in that way... The Trump administration has been a little bit of a gift to the Communist Party. I mean, not necessarily Trump himself, but a lot of the kind of craziness that has accompanied Trump, like things like polarization and like kind of the battle between the left and the right in the US, like all that stuff, I think they're kind of gloating a little bit. And do they use this line, beloved to Arab dictators across the Arab region, which is that human rights are inherently Western? 
and yeah. they, they don't belong here. They're like a, a construct from that part of the world and they can right. stay over there because they're not compatible with us over here. Correct. Yeah. So this is a really, really pervasive myth in China. And I think, to be honest, I've heard a lot of people say this. And I really believe in my heart of hearts that human rights are universal. I have a hard time saying that to people in China who really feel that way. And, you know, this includes people from all walks of life, like, you know, kind of your average person to someone who's really educated and like works in finance or like has a lot of money or whatever, right? Yeah, lots of people have this preconception. But in my time as a journalist, generally there's this thing that happens. It's like you write something that, you know, kind of rubs somebody the wrong way. You get hauled in for what they call a tea session with, you know, some nice people from the foreign ministry. And uh, they actually don't really serve you tea at all, but they might get you some boiling water. And what they often say is that, well, you like to write about human rights, but what you don't understand is that China has lifted a billion people out of poverty, and that is way more important than human rights, and that is human rights, and like, why don't you write about that? Why do you write about this other thing? So it's basically like, a, let's gently suggest some kind of better uses of your time as a reporter. Yeah. So like, my favorite thing that they've said to me is they're like, well, this this article was wrong. So I said, like, you know, if there's a factual error, you can tell me about it and like, we'll correct it. And then the guy thinks for a second. And he's like, well, there's not a specific error, but the story was wrong nonetheless. <laughs> fake news. <laughs> fake news. Exactly. <laughs> the fake news thing in the States is really funny to me because I think all of us that work in authoritarian countries, I think fake news like way predates Trump. This element of... Um... Like, welcome to the party. Have you, are you just oh. realizing this? Oh, my gosh. So I'm American. And during the election, I think the day that the results came out, I was on a reporting trip in Manila. I was writing about the drug war. And I was meeting some activists in Manila who didn't support Duterte. And one of them on the day of the election said, like, good luck. I don't want what happened to us to happen to your country. I was like, oh, you know, and and sure enough, Trump got elected and I got these messages of like condolence. That's the only way I can describe it from friends in Southeast Asia that really felt Trump is this authoritarian guy and you guys are really screwed. And I think for Americans, that's really surreal because we're used to feeling bad for everybody else. Like we're used to being from like the free world, right? And being kind of condescending towards the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're super condescending. So, yeah, it was kind of an ego check. <laughs> were you at the first session of the Oslo Freedom Forum yesterday? Yeah. I was listening to that futurist who spoke. And I had my, uh, I, I like that kind of response. I had my hand, my head in my hands the whole time and people around me were groaning. Yeah. And so basically he's a futurist who talks about technology and mm. how great the future is going to be. And he was basically talking at high speed, very excitably, repeatedly saying the word exponential, you know, exponential right. technologies, exponential growth. Right. And talking about how we're going to be able to put computers inside our bodies, reprogram our biologies, right. change our genetics and code everything and all these things. And I was just w listening in horror and thinking, have you learned nothing from history? Holy <laughs> shit, do you know how this stuff mm -hmm. is going to be used? Yeah, <laughs> it was very strange. I don't think technology is fundamentally like bad or anything like that. But I mean, I do think that it's you have to look at it from both sides, right? Like you I think it's it's, it's also like, irresponsible to be a techno utopian, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping that not everyone in Silicon Valley thinks like that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious what you think. Uh, I mean, to me, like, I, I came to China kind of around the Arab Spring 
era. And I think everyone in China around that time was looking at the Middle East and thinking, you know, this could happen here. And they even had something in China called the Jasmine Revolution, which is has sort of become a footnote in history. But at the time, it felt like, you know, maybe this is going to be something. It was something that was organized on Weibo. And it was basically a gathering in this neighborhood called Wangfujing, which is in central Beijing. And uh, of course, not that many people came. Um, and it, it turned out to be a whole lot of nothing. But I remember back then, everyone was just so optimistic about the power of social media. And I was really optimistic about Weibo. I thought it was going to help people connect to each other in ways they hadn't been able to do before. And a lot of that optimism, I think, has proven to be totally unfounded. Well, in the Arab world, they really did help a lot of people connect to each other in ways that they couldn't before. It was also the coming age of a new, the coming of age of a new generation. Mm. So you had these people who had not experienced the conditions that a lot of their parents' generation had. They were growing up in a world in which they could see the rest of the world in front of them because of the communications revolution, satellite TV, that kind of thing. And and they were used to from their early days being able to you know share their opinions online. There, there's no public sphere in the Arab world because the the media is very tightly controlled, TV mm-hmm. channels and, and newspapers and radio, public gathering places are very tightly controlled. And suddenly this thing appeared which wasn't very tightly controlled. There's there's a cartoon that I absolutely love from Saudi Arabia. A comic artist basically drew this um, like snapshot. It happened when some kind of like miscarriage of justice had occurred mm-hmm. and people took to Twitter in outrage. And within a couple of days, the decision had been reversed basically because the authorities saw how strongly people felt and decided this isn't worth it. Mm. And this cartoonist wrote, Twitter is the parliament of the Arabs. So the optimism of those days is gone, but I still believe that that's the case. Twitter is really the only place in the Arab world where people can freely exchange information, where people can get to know each other. Mm. You know, I'm starting a think tank that works on uh, liberal ideas in Islam, and I met my co-founder through Twitter and it, and it wouldn't be happening without that. And so many of these movements wouldn't be happening without that. And even though the Arab Spring turned sour, there's still a lot there under the surface. There were so many people who were affected and who are going to take what they gained from it for the rest of their lives. And they're going to build stuff. You know, we, we don't expect mass protests to change stuff, but these people are, you know, going to make careers and they're going to start companies and they're going to start start their own initiatives and affect their communities and all of that was shaped by the mm-hmm. ability to communicate and share ideas freely which social media bought so it's it's not all the negative story of failure that you know people outside the arab world have have gotten used to yeah that that's a really really good perspective yeah i've been struck by the fact that in china There literally is no public square because if you have a physical gathering, like in a park or something, above a certain amount of people, it's going to get broken up by police, probably. Or or it'll be it'll be watched by police, at least. I think people really depend on the Internet for that. And I think that continues to be true, even despite the censorship aspect. And people continue to be creative in avoiding censorship, like we mentioned. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, not everything is political, but I think, yeah, there there is, like, still tons of creativity. Um, it used to be more just because the censorship used to be a little bit lighter. But, I mean, yeah, Winnie the Pooh, case in point. This is part one of a two-part discussion with Mega. Stay tuned for the next episode in a week. Meanwhile, check out the show notes for links to the articles mentioned in the discussion, as well as links to Mega's work. In the airport on the way home from the forum, I picked up an issue of The Economist, whose cover story was about this very topic. A police state like no other, 
and apartheid with Chinese characteristics, is how it described it. The Chinese regime is committing cultural genocide against the Uyghurs, before the fully open eyes and ears of the entire planet. I haven't seen a single liberal democracy offer a denunciation, let alone any kind of threat of action. We know the reason, of course. China is an economic superpower. But the writing is on the wall. Human rights are for sale to the highest bidder. If you have a strong economy, you can trample human rights without as much as a peep from so-called liberal democracies. But it's also important to note another fact about this. We can see it happening before our eyes. This wouldn't have been possible in another era, when we might not have found out about it until years later. Half of the Assad's Hama massacre in 1982 in Syria springs to mind as a notable example. The destruction of an entire city and the brutal slaughter of tens of thousands of people, which we still don't have an accurate figure for. Um, the city was taken completely off the grid and most people never even heard about it until years later. That's not possible anymore. And so I just want to take a moment to applaud and thank all of the journalists who are out there reporting on this in the face of state attempts to repress their work. What you're doing is massively important. It's so important that we can at least bear witness to what's happening. Especially in Xinjiang, which so little of the world cares about, and where information has historically been difficult to get out because of its isolation. I'm really heartened by the increasing number of journalists paying attention to it, as well as taking a more adversarial journalistic position to uncover the truth of what's happening. This applies to other countries too. Myanmar, for example. Even if no country is willing to take serious action to prevent what is now being openly called a genocide by even UN officials, at least they can't hide behind a veil of respectability. At least we in Western democracies have the ability to pressure our elected officials. And at least we can resist normalization with these regimes. And maybe someday that reporting will be the basis of investigations done by officials who are serious about taking action and holding criminals to account. We shouldn't despair just because there is a current lack of political will. Another thanks is due, this one to our editors, Sana Sakkari and Khulud Ahtewash, for making these recordings presentable enough to release. I really appreciate you guys. If you believe in the importance of this project we're building, the Arab Tyrant Manual, please support it. At the moment, the best way to do that is by helping us reach a wider audience. Every share helps. We also have exciting news coming up in the next few weeks about our plans. There's a lot going on behind the scenes right now, and I'm looking forward to sharing it. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this has been the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. See you in the next episode. مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف